0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hello, um, good evening, folks. It's really nice to be here. It's nice to see so many people on a Thursday night. Is, is it growing on Thursday night? <laughs> I'm not used to having so many people here. It's lovely to have you all here. So, um... Andrea normally comes, and this is her regular night, but she's engaged elsewhere, so she asked me if I'd come and fill in for her tonight, and I'm always happy to do that. Thank you also, Maureen, for announcing the uh, Stanford program. So I actually will be teaching the course in Los Altos uh, beginning at the end of the month. I'm teaching it at Stanford beginning next week, but that class is filled. But at the end of the month, I'll be teaching it in Los Altos. And there are flyers out in the back if anyone's interested in in it. I think it's a good course. Yes, yes. I have a few people who've taken it, so I hope, I'm hoping I get positive shakes. Yes, bring it on. So, okay, great. I just, wanted to announce that because it's going to happen and the classes sometimes fill up quickly. So um, I'm up at Spirit Rock right now and um, I'm uh, managing their Labor Day retreat for some good friends who are teaching it and um, so I've driven down here and I'm trying to think, oh, What would be a good thing to talk about? What would be a good thing to talk about? So I thought I would start off with a poem by uh, Hafiz. I, I generally don't do poems, but this one seemed nice. And it's titled, The Subject Tonight is Love. The subject tonight is love, and for tomorrow night as well. As a matter of fact, I know of no better topic for us to discuss until we all die. (laughs) So I thought that would be kind of a nice way to start the evening here. And um, one of the things that I've come to appreciate and recognize in my own practice is that um, pretty much it all boils down to love even though we sort of lose sight of it, and sometimes men don't connect with that word as, as easily as women, but maybe that's not true. But, um, you know, we do all sorts of different practices to um, quiet down, to stabilize the mind, to become, um, you know, calm, concentrated, um, to open the door to wisdom and um, compassion and, and insight, and um, all of these practices are basically tools that we use in the cultivation of our own, you know, inner life. But all of these practices um, really arise out of and merge back into love, whatever that means. I'm not going to try to explain what love is because I can't explain it any better than most people. Um, But when you think about the practices that we do um, in this sort of meditation community, when we think about um, the practices of the Brahma Viharas, for instance, the metta practice, the karuna practice, the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice, the karuna practice, the compassion practice, the mudita, which is, you know, feeling happiness and and, um, real delight in other people's good fortune, and the equanimity practice. All of those practices are about love. Everything really is about love. Um, We all have this kind of, inner wish to be happy, to be safe. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to say the word, but we all want to be loved. We want to love and we want to be loved. Um, And uh, sometimes we use the word and sometimes we don't. But all of these practices are about bringing us to that sense of connection, that place within ourselves where we feel whole and complete and connected. And it, to me, that feels a little bit like what it would be like to experience love. So to be connected, to have this sense of connection is, is one way of, of expressing or um, experiencing love. So these practices that we do... Um, are practices that sometimes bring us a sense of connection to this yearning inside of us, this spark within us. And sometimes they, uh, they become kind of dry and repetitive. It's like we're doing them over and over and over again, but we're not really... Um, uh, we're not feeling the juice or something. We're not feeling so connected. Has anyone ever had that experience in their own practice where you just, you, you know, you, go, you feel like you're going through the motions, but you're not really connecting. It's, it doesn't feel real. So I'm asking a question, and I'm not waiting for the answer, but it's a rhetorical question because I think most people feel that, Um, at one point or another in their practice. So we have to look for ways to make our practice come alive, to make our practice be sustainable, to make our practice feel um, infused with this quality of inspiration, and I'm just going to keep saying the word over and over again because it's a lovely word to say, love. So um, there's different ways that we can practice, different skillful means that we can use. And um, a couple of them are that we can um, cultivate the quality of integrity in our life. We can cultivate what's known in in um, Buddhist practice as the, the cultivation of sila our virtue in our practice. So one way of doing that is to keep the precepts uh, or to you know, at least think about the precepts and see what it's like when you bring them into your life. So does everybody know what the five basic precepts are here? Anybody does not know? Okay. So let me just, I'll just go over it for those of you who don't. So um, these are basically training rules. These are not like commandments that people have to follow. And if they don't follow them, it's a sin of some sort. So uh, the five basic precepts for lay people are not to do harm through killing. So not to take the life of another living creature, not to um, steal, not to take what isn't given, not to abuse our sexuality, which is a powerful human impulse, and not to use it in a way that harms others or harms ourselves, not to... uh, lie or use speech in an unskillful way or a gossipy way or a, a manipulative way um, and not to uh, abuse intoxicants like alcohol or drugs so that the mind gets so clouded that we break the first four precepts because we're not clear enough to figure out what's going on any longer. So using the precepts in our lives is really an act of love taking them on as a practice is really an act of love and when i was a monk the monks have 227 precepts that they have to follow but of those 227 these five that that i just mentioned are the core they're the actual foundation of all precepts. For the bhikkhunis, for the women, they have like 300 and some rules. It's even worse. Um, And it's the same for the women. These five are the core of the precepts. And when we begin to take them on, when we begin to reflect on them, when we begin to notice whether we're acting on them in our daily life. You see, um, things begin to open up. We become, we actually become more mindful. We become more aware of our actions and the results, the consequences of our actions, in our our lives. So, you know, um, I I thought it was just a simple thing of thinking. Oh, well, I won't, I won't kill, and I won't. You know, I won't do these things, or I'll try not to do these things. But when I started to reflect on them, and I well, let's just take the first precept. When I started to reflect on what it meant to do no harm and to not kill, you know, the not killing, I got pretty quickly. But the the do no harm, that didn't really register in in a way until I started to think about it and. When I was in the monastery I read a book which was written by a westerner and uh it wasn't a he wasn't a buddhist but it was a person who had some sort of an awakening experience when he was a, a young kid when he was about 12 or 13 years old he had some sort of an experience and some sort of profound experience anyway he He wrote a series of books, and one of the things that jumped out to me, I'm digressing here, but it, it was interesting to me, so I'm going to share it. One of the things that jumped out was he said that you could take any spiritual practice at all, and all spiritual practices come out of love, are rooted in love, and go back to love, so to speak. You could take any spiritual practice, and if you practice that sincerely, you know, and made it the way that you live, he said, it would take you all the way to awakening, to enlightenment, to nibbana. I mean, that's a pretty outrageous claim to make. He said, but just make the commitment, just make the resolve that you're going to take up some practice and practice it in this way, and just see how quickly life gets in the way. That was quite a challenge. So I'm in the monastery and there's not much to do. You know, you've given up everything and you're all by yourself and, um, and for some reason, and I don't find that I'm a very confrontational person and I'm, I'm pretty easygoing and pretty flexible, but for some reason this idea of ahimsa or non-harming you know arose in my mind, and it was because I was practicing the precepts that I began to look at this in a different way so of course i I just decided okay this is this is my practice i 'm going to practice this until I get enlightened. Well, that lasted for about a half an hour or so, and then life got in the way, and then I started again. but the practice what it showed me was how violent my own thinking was towards myself, how harsh I was towards myself, how unforgiving I was. Here I am s- sitting in a forest in a c- situation where I, I think I have created every possible condition for ideal awakening and my mind is still not settled and still you know and then pff, giving myself a really rough time really giving myself a rough time and then i began to notice i would go to uh, they call it pindapat, where the monks go on alms rounds to get their food and the monastery that i happened to live in was one of the largest monasteries in Burma. And so there were too many monks for us to just go into the village. We would overwhelm the village because it was a poor village. And so people would bring food to the monastery, and then the monastery had a monastery kitchen, and they would prepare the food and and serve us in a a hall, and the monks would go to the hall, and we'd go through sort of a... (laughs) might be called a buffet line, but we we simply walked through the line and people would service. And then the lay people who had offered the food would sort of line up and they would be sitting as, and with their children and their families and it was so sweet. And they were so happy to see, you know, again, it's all love, right? They were so happy to see their offering being to, to, to the monastic community. It just made them absolutely delighted and happy. And here, so these wonderful conditions. And I would be thinking, look at that monk. He doesn't even know how to tie his robes, for goodness <laughs> sakes. <laughs> you know, just being sort of grown I began to notice that that was actually occurring. Because <laughs> it it was a thought. It would arise and then it would pass away. And then, but then, when I began to notice this non-harming, I began to think, "This is an act of violence." See, maybe not towards the other monk because the other monk wasn't affected by it, but I was affected by it. I was affected by it. And one of the things that I, I teach in the compassion course is that we are always. The immediate and first recipient of any expression of love or any expression of anger. We get the sting of that anger or that first before anyone else gets it. We might express it and someone else might get the sting too, which is really unfortunate. But it doesn't make any difference. We get stung first or we we also are the beneficiaries of, of any goodwill that we create. So keeping the precepts, cultivating integrity in our life, is a way of cultivating love. It is absolutely a way of cultivating love. And in this case, the example I wanted to give you, it's a way of cultivating self-love or self-compassion which is so difficult for us. Most of us have a really hard time with self-compassion. And, and if I call it self-love, we have an even harder time. So so that's one, one of the ways that we pra- This is one of the tools. And that's all it is. This is re- it's a tool. The precept is a training guideline to be used as a tool to help us cultivate inner qualities. Another thing that we can do that we're all doing here when you come and you meditate here every week and every day that you meditate is that you're cultivating mindfulness and clear comprehension. You're beginning to see how to discipline. You're beginning to discipline the mind and see how what it's like to be with things as they actually are with clear comprehension rather than through the filters of of preferences, expectations, I want it to be this way, I don't want it to be that way, aversions and so on and so forth. With mindfulness, we're able to see what's actually happening as it's happening. Make sense? Yes? So mindfulness begins to show us what's happening, and compassion gives us the capacity and the ability to hold what's happening without turning away. So compassion is this beautiful spiritual quality that arises in response to the recognition or the cognition of suffering, either suffering in ourselves or noticing suffering in someone else. And this is really important because um, sometimes we think that with mindfulness we can sort of dissolve the kind of things that causes stress, and that. Mindfulness is really like a mirror, and it reflects back what is in front of it, and that's all it does. It sees it for what it is, and it doesn't judge it. So it's very, in a way, it's a very neutral kind of a thing. It's very powerful. Without mindfulness, nothing is, po- uh, there's there can be no progress in, Practice, without being able to see what's really going on. So we we do these practices, and we begin to cultivate the ability to see things with greater clarity, with with clearer comprehension, and um, and so as we practice, sometimes our practice. Opens up in a very um, natural way that feels wonderful. It's almost like, wow, I understand everything. And the next day, it's, wow, I don't understand a thing. How did that happen? You see? And so, how do you sustain practice then? How do you sustain it in the face of the ebb and flow of our natural experience? I want to suggest that one of the ways that you sustain it is to stay rooted with the, with the heart of compassion and the heart of love. So as we develop um, virtue and through, through the precepts and living in that way and we cultivate our mindfulness, our mind begins to quiet down and we naturally begin... To be able to access states of of sort of concentration, and sometimes this happens in the most gradual way. We don't even realize that we're getting more concentrated. So I want to give you an example. When um, uh, I'll give you an example in the form of a question: Have has anyone noticed that? sometimes when you use the practice of uh, mindfulness of breathing and you're trying to follow the breath, focus your attention on the breath, that sometimes the mind will not stay with the breath. That's all there is to it. It just doesn't, it doesn't, the breath has no, no magnetic quality to it. It's like, forget it. I'm off on some thought train. And, at other times, the mind, it's almost like the mind will get glued to the breath. It's so natural to just stay with the breath. It's so natural to, it's like you, you relax and all of a sudden you're just with the, the in, in and out flow of the breath. It's almost like a, a wave and it feels just like effortless. It is effortless because you're not trying. All you're doing is resting, receiving that type of thing. And so we don't even realize that what's happening is that we're getting more concentrated. And when we get more concentrated, our mindfulness is brighter and so is our comprehension clearer. So these things work together in very immediate um, ways. And the more we practice, the more we notice this in our meditation, um, the more Uh, we can sort of fuel that type of development. And one of the ways to do that, I'm going to suggest, is to begin to notice this in your daily life experience, not just on the cushion. Because sometimes on the cushion things, especially if we're doing, you know, uh, if we're not in a retreat situation where you're meditating for hours every day, and, um, you know, you really get a chance to settle down. But if you're, you're just meditating for a half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour a day or something like that, uh, it's really important to see the way that these things show up in your, your day-to-day experience. And by doing all this, we are really cultivating wisdom and insight. This is how we cultivate it. But it's really important for us to recognize that these are the ways that we practice. These are not what we practice for. We don't practice to be able to follow the breath and, you know, do the precepts and so on and so forth. We practice those precepts and those those mindfulness of breathing practices in order to, to. I love the expression, the sure heart's release, in order to free ourselves from from ignorance, in order to free ourselves from aversion, in order to free ourselves from being driven by our desires and so on and so forth, in order to free ourselves from suffering. So that's what these tools are for. And we do this because this is an act and an expression of love. I'm suggesting this. You don't have to believe me, but that's what I'm suggesting. Does this make sense to people? Do you resonate with this? Yes. Good. So these are tools, and um, what we're practicing for is for the sure heart's release, for relinquishment, for the letting go of that which, which obscures us and blocks us, from being connected to that place of love, from expressing the love that's within each one of us. So um, this requires a, a kind of letting go. We have to begin to let go of the things that cause suffering and cause Uh, contraction, restriction, discontentment, and so on and so forth. And part of the way that we begin to let go is that we begin to to see that we are discontented. We begin to see that we are contracted. And when I say that, what I mean is we actually see discontentment. We're not lost in discontentment. We actually see sadness. We're not lost in sadness. We see thinking, the process of thinking. We're not lost in the process of thinking. This is really important to get. And when I say we see it, this is what mindfulness does. So when we're meditating and we're trying to focus on the breath and the mind spins off, at a certain moment we recognize that we're not with the breath any longer. So one of the things that I used to do was (laughs) I'd like try to bring myself back to the breath. And then the breathing was very uh, um, stressful. Artificial in a way. It was just, you see. And so, but what I was missing was everything that was happening as I was trying to bring myself back t- to the breath. I was, I was missing that propelling myself into some place that I thought I should be. You see, I was missing the stress that I was creating. I was missing the attitude that judged me for not being able to be with the breath. I was missing all of these things. I was disconnected. I c- completely abandoned myself. I was and so when we begin to do these practices, we begin to see that in the most simple and ordinary ways, things can begin to unfold for us and lead to deep, profound insight and and um, wisdom. So these practice tools that I've been talking about, um, you can ask yourself the question, how do you learn to make use of these tools in a way um, where we can Recognize how to use them and what their limitations are and when it's appropriate to use them and when it's not appropriate to use them so, and how to use them skillfully. So um, there are different aspects of practice and sometimes we're, you know, naturally inclined in one way more so than in another way. And uh, when these different aspects come up, it's appropriate to work with them with one tool or another tool. So how do we know what to do at any given time in our practice in order to sustain our practice, in order to keep our practice going so that we just don't give up because it becomes, we feel stuck or it feels dry or something like that. So we need to understand what each practice is for and in what context its use is appropriate. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I gave a talk uh, in Mountain View the other night, and one of the things that I talked about was um, the value of reflecting on dukkha, the the value of instead of turning away from this quality of dukkha, this quality of suffering, it's to learn to turn towards it and to understand what it actually is, how it's expressing itself, and how it comes to be, and how, how, what we can do about it, if anything. So the Buddha tells us time and again to reflect on the unsatisfactory or stressful quality of suffering, which is basically dukkha. And the different practices that I've been talking about are each helpful for relinquishing dukkha in particular ways. So, that's what the practices are for. The practices are to teach us how to let go of dukkha. So we hear teachers say over and over again, let go, let go, let go. And I know I've said this to many people who are in this room, (laughs) so I'm going to repeat myself here, you know i i hear that and i want to like <laughs> smack someone <laughs> if i knew how to let go don't you think i would let go <laughs> you know <laughs> tell me how to let go <laughs> so i'm i'm trying to give you some ideas on how what it means to let go really let go and how some of the things how you can use some of these practices in order to let go so one of the ways that that you can let go that I really wanna emphasize here is to see things for what they are. See things as they truly are. When you see the truth of what has arisen in your experience, you are not, you are not a slave to that any longer. You are free. The moment you see that, you have a moment of freedom. Now, that doesn't mean the momentum and all of the you know, peripheral things that are involved in anything that arises suddenly is reconciled and it, everything is wonderful. But it means that you have seen through that which you didn't understand before. You see? Once you know what's there... It doesn't control you anymore. You're you're a fr- you become a free agent, and change is gradual. But that moment of recognition happens almost instantaneously. It, that's my experience. Other people may may have. I'm sure other people have different experiences, and some people may disagree with what I just said. But that's my actual experience. I sometimes. Have an insight into what has arisen for me. And there's a sense of letting go, there's a sense of putting down, there's a sense of freedom. But it doesn't mean that that which was causing me to be anxious or worried or angry or upset or discontented suddenly just goes away. But what what changes is that I'm no longer trapped by it, and my relationship to it is is—it's almost one of the equals. I, I have a more equanimous... It's, it makes it much easier to be equanimous with what's happening once I've seen what it is that's happening. So let's say that it, it, I was really angry about something or really anxious about something, you know, once I've seen that, if it's really a difficult thing and I've seen it and I don't abandon myself, then I've held it in compassion. Then compassion can, can hold that. And I can be okay, or a person, I'll take me, the personal pronoun out of it, we can be okay, Here, um, with being with whatever has arisen and not just default to the patterns that keep us as far away from what's causing us discomfort as possible. So rather than lashing out at someone if I'm angry, I can see the anger and I can just okay i still feel the anger but i can let it sort of flow through without locking on it and without needing to dump it onto someone else now it might be so i might be so far into it that i can't do it but I- that i can't prevent myself from doing something unskillful but even so i've seen it and and it's almost like i can remember i had a very gentle father he was really a a a wonderful guy and in my entire childhood he's he never hit me once but (laughs) i had done something (laughs) that just sent him over the top i had ruined something of his (laughs) and it sent him over the top and he 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 came after me and he raised his hand and he started to bring it. And I could almost see him try, even though I was scared, I could almost feel the love in him as he tried to pull it back before. (laughs) And he didn't hit me, but boy, he came darn close. You see, it's almost like something caught it in him and he could prevent himself from just going crazy, that type of thing and if he did hit me i deserved it by the way <laughs> so so okay so dukkha is um what we're looking at and dukkha is what is part of our experience and and it's it, you know the way that we live in this phenomenal world is <clears throat> is So we're so identified with what happens to us and we're so immediately um, programmed to connect to our experience as though it is us rather than changing experience. And in this kind of identification, this kind of me making, my making, and so on and so forth, um, we, are living with this constant sense of discontent or unsatisfactoriness because we can never get things the way we want them. Has, is there anyone in this room that's got things the way they really want them to be? And if the, if they had, how, were you able to hold on to it for very long? That's what I thought, that's my experience too. So, So, this brings us back to the fact that this is kind of the human condition. So it behooves us to begin to look at this quality of dukkha from the most obvious and outrageous dukkha that we can have. I mean, people suffer but we don't have to look far to see really intense suffering. Just down to the most subtle things, minor irritations, preferences that we have, you know. Um, people get together and they move in together, and one person wants the toilet paper to come over the top, and the other one wants it to come over from the bottom, and this is a big, big source of dukkha at some point or another. <laughs> So, so <laughs> we begin to look in our present moment lived experience. Always notice what it's like for what the actual lived experience is like in in the present moment. So at any moment, you can look to begin to see what it's like to be with your lived experience, the experience that you're actually having rather than the experience that you're thinking about. So um, it's useful to know um, when it's appropriate to engage this quality of sila, when it's appropriate to actually say, okay, it's time for me to start paying attention to the precepts. I think this would be useful, you see? I, in my own life, sometimes I don't think about the precepts for days and days and days, and then all of a sudden I think about them, and then I think, wow, it's really useful to remember them, not to be obsessed with them and not to be like, trying to be like the best person in the world. I wouldn't mind being the best person in the world. But the idea is to, con- to, when they're useful, they're useful. You know, sometimes when, sometimes in meditation, it's really appropriate to allow the mind to rest with the breathing, with the breath. It's a way to settle the mind down. The mind might feel unsettled, you might feel a lot of energy and so on and so forth, and to try to be with other practices isn't useful. It's useful to settle the mind down, to purposely settle the mind down, Um, and, and to develop a kind of continuous mindfulness by watching the breath, or by, there's other ways to cultivate mindfulness too, but so, we can, there's times to practice sila. There's times to cultivate sharp, continuous mindfulness. And <clears throat> this brings us a sense of balance and composure and um, century strength. And sometimes that's what will do the trick. That will bring us back. It'll sort of wake us up. It'll shake us up. It'll put juice back in our practice. Sometimes to purposely try to deepen and um, how do I want to say this? Uh, to, To deepen our sense of samadhi, which is different than concentration. Concentration is like we're trying to like, the English word means we're like sort of really trying to focus on something and it has a kind of stress quality to it. But samadhi is this allowing the mind to just settle and stabilize you just allow 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 and, and, and when samadhi happens the mind sort of comes together and um, it's a state that can't be missed but it's also a state and I'll use the word concentration um, it, it gives rise to the clarity we need in order to see our suffering and to let go so this is another way that we can practice. At other times it's appropriate and necessary to really cultivate wisdom and insight. And, the, and it's, all of this cultivates wisdom and insight, but this is what I'm wanting to point to, is it's appropriate to, to sort of activate the practice of intentional investigation So we begin to reflect on our experience and question and analyze it and we use the mind's ability to discriminate in order to see through suffering. So we actually are using the mind in a very purposeful way. And we have these, and we have minds that we can do that with. And this is a gift and it's something that we can use as a tool that's appropriate. But when we analyze things to death then we're misusing that tool you see or when all we're trying to do is get concentrated we're not in balance you see or if we think we can do it by just be we think we can find the way to the end of suffering or to putting suffering down by just being a good person you know and practicing the cultivation of virtue, as important as it is, it's not enough. You see, we have to have balance. We have to quiet the mind down. That will assist us, that will aid us in allowing the mind to settle and quiet down. But it's not enough by itself. So all of these things work together. And when I was in the monastery, my teacher would tell me time and time again, because I was practicing in a tradition that was um, cultivating the quality of concentration before doing Vipassana practice, with the idea that you can do Vipassana at a a deeper level when the mind is very concentrated. And that probably may or may not be the case. I'm not going to bring that up. But my teacher would say to me over and over and over again, it's impossible to get concentrated without mindfulness. Mindfulness is the backbone of this entire practice. Until we can see what's happening, we're slaves. Until we can see what's happening, we're trapped. So... um, by cultivating wisdom in this sort of systematic way it's possible for us to neutralize sometimes to neutralize and let go of the experience of suffering so I'm going to bring us back to what I said a few moments ago and like I've heard teachers say let go and I've thought tell me how so this is I'm offering this as one of the ways that you can begin to try out for yourself whether it's possible to let go of these things by using these practices in skillful ways. And one of the immediate benefits of doing this is that when you practice with something and then it gets sort of Stale, or um, you know, you sort of plateau and it's like nothing's happening. You can look, you can begin to see, well, it should maybe there's something else that's called for now, or maybe I'm missing something. And then you can begin to, you know, it's like a lot of people, and ask me how I know this. Um, are afraid to explore in their own practice. They're afraid to try things. They, they hear, oh, follow the breath, and then they try to follow the breath until they go crazy because for some reason, they're, you know, or they're told, you know, say the phrases of loving kindness, and they say the phrases, and then pretty soon they're just phrases. They don't mean anything or something, so. This is a way that you can keep your practice fresh and this is a way that you can um, uh, cultivate a deepening sense of appreciation and love in your own life. It's a way to be connected to that source of inspiration that brings every single one of you to groups like this to practice and meditate together. Uh, I <clears throat> I can remember being on retreat and my teacher <laughs> would remind us that we were 30 people on retreat and there were 300 million people who lived in America and we were the only 30 that were on that retreat and it wasn't that we were so special but it was a pretty special thing that was happening there so when people come together to practice like this it's not it's not to be taken for granted something really stirred within your heart to bring you to practice and to to show up and you can appreciate that in yourself. You can appreciate it in one another. And, and you can begin to look for the inspiration that comes from recognizing that and sharing it with others. And a way that you can do that is to start cultivating these practices in systematic but really friendly gentle ways. Friendly, friendly. I love this quote from Kristin Neff who who's, teaches self-compassion. She's this self-compassion person. And she, said, she says, you know how to do this. You just have to remember to be a good friend to yourself. So you all know how to do this. You just have to remember to be a good friend to yourself. So my wish for you is ultimate friendship, (laughs) unconditional friendship and love. So the subject tonight was love, and for tomorrow night as well. As a matter of fact, I know of no better subject or topic for us to discuss until we all die. (laughs) So may you swim in love. Thank you.